and welcome to the first Book Arts Press Lecture of the 1987-88 year. The next lecture will be next Monday, Ken Rendell, the antiquarian bookseller and dealer in manuscripts from Newton, Massachusetts, will be speaking, he hopes, not on forgeries, although every time he turns around somebody else forges something which he is called upon to unveil. So if there are no late-breaking developments, he will actually talk about manuscripts. And he promises in any event not to talk about Hitler and not to talk about the Freeman's Oath or the Salamander Letter or many other events with which he has necessarily and unwillingly become mixed up. Our speaker this evening is David Nord, who is Associate Professor of Journalism at Indiana University, whom a number of you have been reading a piece by in connection with the core readings. His talk tonight is called Teleology and News, The Religious Roots of American Journalism, 1630 to 1730. David Nord. Thank you, Terry. So I'm the first, so I will try to uh, get this off started as well as I can. Um, is the sound okay? You're hearing this okay. I would like to, uh, to start with a, with a story. Um, takes place, begins on October 17, 1637. And on that day, uh, Mary Dyer in Boston, a supporter of Anne Hutchinson and others in the religious controversy then swirling through Boston, delivered a hideously deformed child, uh, stillborn child. Uh, the women attending the birth decided that they would keep it secret, but it gradually leaked out the, the information about it. And a few months later, uh, it came to the attention of the authorities in Boston, particularly the governor, John Winthrop. Uh, the body was exhumed, and the exhumation of this, this uh, fetus was uh, quite a sensation in Boston. As many as 100 people gathered to uh, watch the exhumation and uh, take a look at this grotesque little corpse. Now, this story uh, was news. Uh, it's news, was news, is news in ways that uh, are fairly familiar. That is, it was news in the sense that people were interested in it. Uh, it's news in the sense, as I'll describe shortly, in how it was published. And it's also news uh, in the sense that we still have stories like this in the newspapers today. Uh, this story was published in a number of ways fairly early. Um, it was published as a news sheet in London a few years later. Extraordinary news from Boston. Uh, it was published in the first uh, so-called history of the Anne Hutchinson affair in Boston. I say so-called because it, it was a current history. It was a kind of journalistic history published just a few years after the events. Um, Winthrop describes it in some detail in his diary. And it also became an item in the almanacs uh, that were published at the Cambridge Press in the 1640s. Um, in the list of memorable occurrences, that would be published in those almanacs. There would be 
references to Indian Wars, to deep snows, to earthquakes, droughts, shipwrecks, epidemics, and, and this. Mrs. Dyer brought forth her horned four-talon monster, just an item in the almanac. Now, the question that I would like to pose, talk with you a bit about this evening, is why was this news? Why was this kind of thing news in New England in the 1630s? And more generally, what was news for these people in the uh, mid-17th century, and why was it news? Uh, what was the nature and function, the public function of news in this era in America? And what legacy did, did conceptions of news from the 17th century, which is a pre-newspaper era in America, leave for the newspaper era that followed in the 18th century. And specifically, I would like to argue that the origin of American news, both its subject matter and to some extent its style and method of reporting, is deeply rooted in the religious culture of 17th century New England. News uh, was, in a word, teleological, which is uh, a word that I use in the title. Uh, by that, I mean that news dealt with occurrences that were deeply connected with the religious understanding of the order of nature and history. All occurrences were clothed in religious and therefore public meaning. Uh, in the 18th century, I think this teleological meaning of occurrences began to fade, and it's rather thoroughly faded in our time, except for small pockets of people who still believe in this kind of thing. And American newspapers as early as the 18th century began to distinguish between two kinds of news, news that was important and news that was merely interesting. Um, still, you'll find in journalism textbooks references to news values, and they'll, they'll use these terms. News is either what people ought to know or what they just like to know. It's important or interesting. In the 17th century, these two were blended together in ways that I think are, are interesting and worth considering. Uh, the Mary Dyer story is a sensational but fairly typical example of 17th century New England news. Um, first of all, I should say that it's not, this kind of news was common not just in New England, but it was common in England and the continent of Europe as well. Um, and particularly an interest in, in sensational stories, uh, strange, wondrous stories of this sort. But in New England, this news did not become official news, or it didn't become published news, because it was sensational. It became news because it was made such by the authorities who controlled the communication processes of, of New England, not just the press, but, but the... Uh, the oral communication system as well, particularly the, uh, the, the churches. Um, it was news because it carried important public information. Uh, it was made news by the governor of, of the colony, John Winthrop, because he saw in this occurrence the designing hand of God, and therefore it became news because of its public meaning. So, Mary Dyer's monstrous birth then was not a bizarre private affair, but it was a divine providence, and therefore a public occurrence 
of public importance. Now, historians of American Puritanism, 17th century New England, have long placed a good deal of emphasis on the idea of divine providence, the belief that, that in nature and in history that God acts for intelligible ends and that these acts are, are aimed specifically or particularly at New England. Um, to some extent, the interest has been here in prodigies of the Mary Dyer sword, strange occurrences. But the American Puritans, as well as others elsewhere too, were also very interested in nature uh, and in not strange but routine occurrences uh, and reading out of that what God's intentions were and also the unfolding of human history as well. And there's been a good deal of, of interest by American historians in the American Puritan sense of history because it helps explain this Puritan sense of mission, of errand, and so forth, which you're familiar with. My interest, though, is, is a little bit different than that. I'm interested not in Puritan theology or ideology or even sociology for its own sake, but I'm interested in how this theology and sociology worked its way into a system of public communication, journalism, if you will, as I'll get into as I, as I continue to pursue this. My purpose is to show how the doctrine of divine providence helped to shape the nature of news and news reporting in America. So let me start out with an example of a particular publicist in 17th century New England. Uh, not, a, not the most well-known, but one whose range of his career illustrates an interesting connection between teleology, religion, and journalism as it began to unfold. Um, I'd like to talk briefly about Samuel Danforth. Um, Danforth, who spent most of his time, uh, most of his career in the shadow of John Eliot as uh, assistant pastor at Roxbury, uh, published just a handful of things. And what he published nicely illustrates the kind of thing that I'm talking about. First of all, he, he started out as a young graduate of Harvard as a, uh, as a tutor at Harvard. And while he was a tutor at Harvard, he became associated with the, with the printing press there. And uh, as you know, the printing press's purpose was to deal in, in, in public ends, that the, the community building, the institutional function of the press was, was clear at that time. The purpose was to support the institutions of of New England, the, 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 the college, the churches, the uh, civil government. And the early products of the Cambridge Press reflected that, that mission. Uh, another early imprint of the press, though, was a little bit different than, than these obviously public-oriented uh, documents. Uh, and one type was the almanac. And this was the uh, the type of uh, publication that Danforth was associated with. He was, the, he was the mathematician for the almanac in its earliest surviving copies. He was given the task of, of doing the astronomical calculations and so forth. Um, but these almanacs under Danforth also were interested not just in nature, but were interested in, in the movements of, of, 
of cosmology, but they were interested very much in history as well. I already mentioned the place that Mary Dyer's misfortune found its way into the almanacs. The almanacs carried lists of occurrences, some memorable occurrences that had meaning in the first decade of settlement in New England. There were two types of occurrences that tended to be listed. One type was the kind of official occurrence that, that, that we'd associate today with official news, the, the, the landing of the fleet in 1630, the Indian War, uh, the beginnings of printing, self-serving news, as journalism still does today. Uh, the other type of news were, were strange, odd occurrences, or not so odd occurrences. Uh, and these included droughts, epidemics, earthquakes, storms, untimely deaths, plagues, uh, strange infestations of pigeons and caterpillars, and then, of course, Mary Dyer's baby. Uh, these two types of occurrences were mingled together and listed without comment simply as items that were meaningful or should be meaningful in the recent history of New England. All of them told the same story, really, and it was a story that didn't need to be explained. They all told parts of the same grand story, God's work in New England. The, uh, the droughts, the caterpillars, the pigeons, and the baby all were designed as messages or interpreted as messages from God about what was going on in New England in the same sense that the more official public occurrences were. So Danforth worked on these early almanacs. He also worked on, uh, after he took a pastorate, he published a few more pieces. Uh, one of his publications was a sermon on the comet of 1664, and it's titled An Astronomical Description of the Late Comet or Blazing Star, together with a brief theological application thereof. And the pamphlet is divided pretty much in those two halves. It begins with science, uh, describing the path of the comet and so forth. And it's very simple, straightforward, and empirical. And then it turns to the application of the comet's presence. That is, what the comet means for public life in New England. And what it means is that it's a, it's a message from God about what New England should do. And this part of the, uh, of the pamphlet also is highly empirical in the sense that it mainly deals with, with occurrences, not just this comet, but other comets and other prodigies of, uh, of, of disasters to come. Uh, he lists, he argues, his argument is, this is a quote, that the history of former ages absolutely testifies that comets have many times been heralds of wrath to a secure and impenitent world. And he describes the history of comets to show that this is the case, going back to Seneca and bringing it up to date with the comet the most recent comment, the news of the piece. And uh, he also cites the kind of thing that he wrote about in his almanacs, um, droughts, frosts, strange, unexpected, untimely deaths, all of which suggest, he said, that the Lord calls upon New England to repent and awake. Uh, an early comet sermon in 17th century New England. There were others. 
Danforth also was the first uh, uh, American to publish with an American press an execution sermon, which became a popular kind of event sermon in New England as it was in, in England and Europe. He uh, published in 1674 a sermon on the uh, execution of a young man for the crime of bestiality. And uh, you can imagine that he was able to read some dire messages from this. Such judgments as these have a voice, he said, a loud voice, a clamorous voice, a dreadful voice, calling to all Israel to hear and fear. That's the theme of it, but the story itself, a good deal of the story, is, is a description of the event, and it's linked closely to the event of this, uh, this crime and the uh, retribution that, that God brought, for, brought on this young man in Massachusetts. Danforth's most famous piece is another kind of, of event-oriented sermon. His, uh, his famous election sermon, A Brief Recognition of New England's Errand into the Wilderness, which, as many of you know, lent its name to, to uh, Perry Miller's uh, chapter and book on the errand idea in, in New England. And this particular... Uh, election sermon. Of course, like all of them, it was keyed to an election, but it had the, the Danforth style with it, too, because not only his theme was was falling away and de declension of, of the original mission, uh, but he talked not just about the election, but he talked about other things that were signs of God's anger and how these were displayed for all to see. He, he asked, why hath the Lord smitten us with blasting and mildew now seven years together? superadding sometimes severe drought, sometimes great tempests, floods, and sweeping rains that leave no food behind, and so forth. Well, the answer was simple. Uh, is it not because the Lord's house, house lieth waste, temple work in our hearts, families, churches is shamefully neglected, and so forth? Well, the fact, these, these are essentially all of Samuel Danforth's publications. And all of them are rooted in current events, and all of them are stories about those events, as well as applications, theological applications of the events. And it's not surprising in New England that all of, of this one publicist's publications would be event-oriented, because most publications in New England were event-oriented that were published in Cambridge and Boston. In my own rough Estimate by counting or by looking at titles um, in the bibliographies, uh, a conservative estimate is that about 55 or more percent of all the publications in New England uh, were oriented to some specific event, occurrence, or action of one sort or another. And many of the ones that, that you cannot tell that from the title had this event orientation in it. Making sense of events, of occurrences, was an important task for ministers, public officials, and for the printing press in New England. Many of these events were great movements of celestial and human history. But as I've already suggested, uh, little things had meaning as well. Um, you've got a flavor of this from Danforth. Um, I think one of my favorites is what I think is probably the first flu story in American journalism, which uh, appears in Michael Wigglesworth's uh, 
very popular poem, God's Controversy with New England. He writes, our healthful days are at an end and sickness has come on from year to year because our hearts away from God are gone. Now colds and coughs, rheums and sore throats do more and more abound. Now sicknesses sore and fevers strong and every place are found. And he goes on and on about uh, coughs and colds and, and rheumatism in New England. So this was common in the publications printed at uh, Cambridge and later at Boston as well. Samuel Danforth's materials were all published at Cambridge. He died in 1674, and that, just by coincidence, was the year that the general court of the colony lifted its ban on printing outside Cambridge. Uh, so up until 1674, printing was only done in Cambridge. In 1675, I'm speaking to the choir here, I guess. You know all these things. But in 1675, the first press was begun in Boston. And uh, it this would remarkably change the nature of printing in America over time, gradually over time. But the first printing in Boston uh, was not much different from what was done in Cambridge, at least as far as the kind of, of themes that I'm talking about in the materials that were published. The first two titles that were printed by uh, John Foster in Boston in 1675 were two sermons, and I'll, I'll read you the titles. They'll be familiar with to some of you if you, if you follow these first, first imprints of the various presses. The Wicked Man's Portion, or a sermon preached at the lecture in Boston and New England on the 18th day of the first month, 1674, when two were executed who had murdered their master. That's the first. And the second is, the times of men are in the hands of God, or a sermon occasioned by that awful providence which happened in Boston in New England, the fourth day of the third month, 1675, when part of a vessel was blown up in the harbor and nine men hurt and three mortally wounded, and so forth. And the author of both of these pieces was Increase Mather. And Increase Mather would become the leading uh, supporter of the Boston press. And he also would become the most uh, obsessive, event-oriented publicist in, in New England in many ways, uh, partly because of his own predilections and partly because the times after 1675 uh, were filled with important events. Many of Increase Mather's publications uh, are, are journalism in some fashion. That is, they are, they are, are accounts of, of current events with interpretations of it. Now, his interpretations were providential, teleological interpretations almost always. Uh, the wellspring of his journalism, if I can use that term to describe what he did, was his devotion to the doctrine of divine providence. Um, like most New Englanders, he believed that God's will could be read out of nature and history, and he spent a good deal of time trying to read it out himself. In 1675, when New England uh, suffered its worst catastrophe in its history, King Philip's War, Mather was very much convinced, if he hadn't already been convinced, that uh, God was speaking very loudly to New England, and that he had seen this coming in, uh, in his sermons leading up to that time. 
for increased Mather, the war, which was a devastating war um, for New England, set them back nearly a century in per capita income. For increased Mather, this war was a prodigy of tremendous importance. And long before the war ended, he began the process of reporting on it and of interpreting what it meant for public life in New England. Um, he published in 1676, before the war ended, a substantial uh, history of the war, um, which I would call journalism, because it was published while the event was going on, and for no other reason. A brief history of the war with the Indians in New England. Um, and he appended to that book a, a small separate pamphlet, which was a sermon titled An Earnest Exhortation to the Inhabitants of New England. His theme was very simple. This was a dreadful judgment. And though that was the theme, he spent most of the time in the book uh, reporting on the events of the war. And his style was very simple, uh, simple and straightforward. In fact, he said in the book that that's all he was going to do. He said, I have not enlarged upon the circumstances of things. I'll leave that to someone else to do. In effect, he was saying, this is just the bare bones first report of what was going on. And his method was plain. It was simple. It was empirical. Uh, and it reads unmistakably, I think, like a piece of popular journalism, an instant history. That's the term we'd use today for a book written while the event is still going. An instant history dashed off while the, while the ashes of war are still smoldering. But even though it's built of rough cut occurrences, uh, there, there are clear structural devices that are designed to carry through it the teleological providential themes that Mather is trying to argue. It runs through it from beginning to end. And God speaks as clearly through King Philip's war to increase Mather as, as he did through Mary Dyer's birth or through the comet of 1664 to Samuel Danforth. King Philip's War was just the beginning of a rising tide of troubles for New England, all of which required this kind of interpretation, and a good deal of it was written by Mather himself. Um, he Probably his most famous work in this line is his uh, is a substantial book published in 1684 called An Essay for the Recording of Illustrious Providences. Uh, the, the origin of this book is interesting because it grew out of a proposal adopted by the ministers of the colony a couple years earlier to collect, organize, and publish accounts of illustrious providences. That is, as they put it, notable occurrences, such as divine judgments, tempests, floods, earthquakes, thunders as are unusual, strange apparitions, or whatever else shall happen that is prodigious. And Mather took it upon himself to do it. Uh, the proposal was adopted, and, and he did it. And he, the book pretty much lived up to the proposal of gathering together an enormous collection of material with the emphasis on New England as much as possible, but with stories being told from, from Europe and England as well. It's enormously detailed and, and eclectic, and uh, it demonstrates some appreciation on the part of Mather for the new science of the late 17th century, but also he was willing to pick up 
stories from wherever he could get them uh, in, a, in a style that I'm going to come back to a little bit later and describe that. Increase Mather continued to publish this kind of teleological news throughout his career. He published works on comets, similar to Danforth's. He published works on storms, earthquakes, fires, witchcrafts. Uh, he always was seeing in these events the design and the act of God. Furthermore, Increase Mather himself, as, as, as you know, was a political participant in many political events as well. And some of his writings along uh, that grow right out of his political involvement also fall into the line of, of event-oriented uh, journalism. Um, this was a time of, of great events after, after 1675, the uh, tightening of imperial controls, the revocation of the Massachusetts Charter in the 1680s, the, uh, the glorious revolution in England and, and in America as well, and finally the uh, restoration of the altered charter of the colony, 1691. During all this time, Mather was writing uh, accounts, uh, sometimes from England, well, sometimes from England while he was there as an agent of the Massachusetts uh, colony. Uh, some of these are, are pieces that are written in the form of political pamphlets. Some of them have more of the clear providential theme running through them. Well, Increase Mather probably published as much of this kind of material as anybody, but other people did as well. Uh, not surprisingly, Cotton Mather, his son, published a lot of this kind of teleological event-oriented material. In fact, Cotton Mather's first published sermon was an execution sermon, which was very popular, and uh, he was very pleased to see that it sold exceedingly, he says in his diary. Uh, published very quickly after the event. And he published this kind of material throughout his long life. And uh, at the end of his life, he was still publishing uh, pamphlets and sermons on events. Uh, the, the, the last big event for Cotton Mather, which drew a couple of, of sermons which resulted in publications, was the 1727 earthquake, which he delivered sermons on immediately after the earthquake. And, uh, and published these accounts very, very quickly after the, uh, after the sermons were first delivered. And the meaning of the earthquake was obvious. Uh, the first sentence of his first sermon on the earthquake gives that away. The glorious God has roared out of Zion. Cotton Mather uh, would publish anything that he could. That he, could. he published hundreds of, of works. And uh, he uh, once while he was uh, delivering a sermon, a storm raged through town, and he proceeded to preach on that storm at that very time and later published the sermon. In Mather's own uh, larger works, such as his, his major history, the Magnalia Christi Americana, he also oriented this very much to, to events and the interpretation of them. Uh, like his father, Cotton Mather believed that it was his divine calling to be a reporter of events. Uh, he wrote in his preface of the Magnalia, to regard the illustrious displays of that providence wherewith our Lord Christ governs the world is a work than which there is none more needful or useful for a Christian 
to record them is a work than which none more proper for a minister. So events loom large in the Puritan imagination and in the product of the Puritan press in New England. Uh, that's been my theme so far. Uh, I would like to talk from here on a little bit about not just the event orientation of this material, but the, uh, the style of the reporting, how the reporting was done, and what that suggests about the legacy of this material for, uh, for journalism as it, as it developed in its more modern form in the 18th century in America. Um, there were similarities, not only in the fact that events formed the centerpiece, but there were similarities also in a couple of ways in the style of reporting. And I'll give these names. I'll title these so you focus your attention. Um, many, of this, many of these pieces engaged in what I call reportorial empiricism. And they also were based on authoritative interpretation. And I'll explain to you what I mean by that. By reportorial empiricism, I mean that this teleological literature of New England was highly empirical, but the style was eclectic and reportorial and not systematic and scientific. The methodology was essentially what journalists today call news reporting, the collation and citation of the statements of sources, not science, not systematic scientific investigation. The sources cited ranged widely from classic works of antiquity to the best scientists of the age, to folklore, uh, to just rumor, whole range of sources. Was, but the citation of sources was the methodology of a good deal of this material. The uh, role of the writer was not to conduct systematic empirical research, but rather was to report the empirical statements of others. Now, such a methodology I would call empiricism without science. It was, in a word, journalism. The earliest almanacs uh, provide the model in skeletal form for this kind of empiricism. On the one hand, they were handbooks of astronomy, very scientific, and they depended on the latest scientific discoveries. Um, on the other hand, they were lists of scattered occurrences, many of which were wholly unverified. They were simply reported to whoever the compiler was, Samuel Danforth in the earliest days. Uh, Danforth followed the same approach in his, in his other pieces. He, he combined the latest scientific discoveries on comets was in his comet sermon, for example. But then he was also happy in the other parts of the, of the uh, piece to simply gather together uh, information about comets from whatever source he could, he could get his hands on. Increase Mather did the same kind of thing, particularly in the essay for recording of illustrious providences. He talks like an empiricist. He talks about his, his, the rigor of checking his sources uh, of getting the best possible sources, and he assures the reader throughout that, that this is information that comes from reliable sources, eyewitnesses, he tells us. But for the most part, he doesn't systematically either gather or verify any of the material. He simply reports it. Uh, he merely passes the information along from the sources that he consults. Uh, some of the people who have written about 
increase Mather's methods, have argued that that's, that's not genuinely empirical at all. But what I would argue is that it is empirical in its way. It's, an, it's a kind of empiricism that's the empiricism of journalism. The empirical data in this method are the statements of sources, not the, the actual events themselves. And that's what Mather dealt in, the statements of sources. And I'd call this the empiricism of the news reporter, not the scientist. And Cotton Mather, uh, the same thing is true. Cotton Mather was more, much more of a true scientist than his father, but he was no scientist like the people that he admired in England. He was no Newton. Uh, he was a reporter of science and a popularizer of it. And uh, some of the things that he collected were, were bizarre, uh, to say the least. And, and he didn't seem to differentiate among the various kinds of curiosa that he was like to collect as a scientist. He, he rarely evaluated the quality of his information. He simply reported it. Now, this style, this eclectic reportorial method of inquiry uh, is, I think, especially congenial to an empiricism that was always the handmaid of religion. The purpose of these writers was not to build or test theory like a scientist. Their theory was given. The doctrine of divine providence specified the first cause of historical, natural, and seemingly unnatural occurrences. Like the scientific method, their method was profoundly empirical, for the Lord spoke through concrete reality in the material world. But unlike the scientific method, their method was not truly experimental, for its object was the documentation of the already known. And I think that that's because of its roots, its basis in, in religious as well as empirical inquiry. So the style of reporting, the reportorial empiricism, was similar in many of these pieces, ran through them throughout this latter part of the 17th century. Now I also said that another similarity is involves interpretation, and that is that interpretation should be by authority. Now this is very this is kind of problematic because the these writers were so sure that the meaning of these events were clear that they were much more interested in the gathering and reporting of the of the data than they were the interpretation of it. And much of these this publication of data of of the empirical quotations from sources was not interpreted at all because the interpretation was considered obvious. Uh, it was well known or it could be easily guessed at by anybody who knew what was going on in New England at the time. But if interpretation seemed neglected, it was only because it was self-evident. Uh, when there was some dispute over the proper interpretation, then there was no doubt that, that, that the proper authorities would interpret it. That's exactly what happened with the Mary Dyer situation. Uh, there was some talk at that time that this might have just been a sign, a private sign to the Dyers themselves. That, uh, that was not meant for public consumption. But John Winthrop would have none of that. He knew that this was a public event of public importance, and it was his job as the governor to see to it that this was made public, uh, and that's exactly what he did. Um, throughout 
in other situations, there were a variety of ways in which authority interpreted what the news meant. Uh, the most common thing was the simple designation of public events. Uh, many of these public events were designated by authority, events that were held for uh, fasts, days of humiliation, that were held because of events that had occurred, and they were designated by the civil authorities as days on which those events would be considered. Um, the regular weekly lectures and sermons all on Sunday also provided uh, the, the, those who had the pulpit uh, a way of interpreting events from their own points of view. And then, of course, there were the more official controls over, over publication, which some of you I'm sure are f familiar with. Publications were licensed. They had to be until 1675, printed in Cambridge, and a variety of controls that were only gradually loosened in the late 17th century. And even outside of these official controls on printing, the, uh, the ministry, the ministers of the colony were, were, were very concerned about the publication of events of particularly prodigies. Uh, the 1681 proposal that Increase Mather followed in gathering all of these divine prodigies made it very clear that, and I'll, I'll quote from it, that uh, when anything of this nature shall be ready for the press, it appears on sundry grounds, very expedient, that it should be read and approved of at some meeting of the elders before publication. They were very concerned about that. Now, in times of troubles, uh, when events were flowing rapidly, this tended in the 17th century to increase the uh, authority of the ministers and those who wrote events-oriented publications. Uh, Increase Mather was in his glory during King Philip's War, and others were as well. I told you so, is the gist of, of some of his long ex, uh, expressions on this. But the war also generated such an interest in, in events that it stirred up a new sort of alternative journalism that, of quite a different slant. Uh, a couple of, of pieces were published gradually in the decades after King Philip's War. They're quite different from Increase Mather's history. Um, the most famous of these is Mary Rowlandson's captivity narrative, uh, where she tells the story of, of her captivity. And this was published in, in 1682. This story is not antithetical to the, to the authoritative view of what the war meant, but it's very different from Increase Mathers. It's much more personal, and it doesn't have a, this national quality to it at all, that is, of, of, of God's relationship to New England. It's a much more personal kind of narrative about God's relationship to individual people. Another narrative that came out of the war was 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 indeed antithetical to the authoritative view. And this was Benjamin Church's entertaining passages relating to King Philip's War. Uh, Church was, was a cap, he was one of the uh, leaders of the troops, and his story is not about divine providence at all. It's about self-reliant individualism, and he's the hero of the piece, not God. Significantly, that, though it's about King Philip's War, was not published till 1716, some uh, 40 years after the, after the war when things began to change in Boston. So in the 17th century, there was 
already beginning a little bit of disharmony uh, between report, reporting, and interpretation, that the emphasis on reporting was a kind of emphasis that could get out of hand, out of hand of authority. Uh, events do have lives of their own, and people tend to read out of them what they will, regardless of what authorities tell them. Um, in other words, the potential for heresy, you might say, lurks in journalism as well as in religion. The uh, situation in interpreting events in journalism is really perfectly analogous to doctrinal conflicts in Bible-based Protestantism. When believers are urged to search the scripture, they sometimes see things that the authorities don't think they should be seeing there. And the same thing is true when people are urged to search the book of nature and events. Uh, they tend to, uh, to see things in journalism that the authorities uh, may not want them to see there as well. So these are characteristics of reporting that I think already had taken place, taken their place in uh, New England by the end of the 17th century before newspapers arrived. And in a few minutes at the end here, I want to say a little bit about what happened when newspapers did finally arrive. Uh, the first successful one in New England being in, in 1704, the Boston Newsletter. Uh, of course, there had been newspapers from England, but this was the first American printed newspaper that was successful. And John Campbell, the, the editor of the paper, uh, its main purpose was to publish an account of occurrences, uh, a string of occurrences mainly from Europe. And he bragged at the end of his first year that he had as much information in there as you could get out of the London papers. Plus, he said, a great many providences now recorded that would otherwise be lost. So part of his job was to imitate the London press in a way. But another part of the job was to continue the tradition of recording divine providences. And he did that from time to time. Uh, most of these little providential items in the Boston newsletter were factual and tierce. Little items about storms, fires, and so forth. Uh, many of these things were still covered by the old system of journalism. There was a fire in the uh, Anchor Tavern one day, and John Campbell carried a little item in the newspaper about it. But that very afternoon, Increase Mather preached a sermon on it, and, uh, and so did Samuel. Uh, uh, not as many as, as, as you, not much local news, as you know, in these papers. But it did contain uh, many of these items, which were items that had been established in the teleological news system of of 17th century, man, 17th century New England. But there was an exception. Uh, there was much less interpretation of this kind of material. There was little in the 17th century, but there was almost none in Boston Newsletter. That is, the items were simply delivered as pieces of reporting, and the interpretation was left to the uh, preachers in the pulpits uh, and the publications of those sermons. In short, what Campbell reported was teleological news without teleology, and the news was remained. Uh, other papers in America were not that much different from the Boston Newsletter. Some were papers that were more oriented to, to authority, some less. Some were anti 
the in-group, and gradually journalism in America became highly diverse. But one thing that was true that continued in most of the papers was this interest in the same kind of news that had dominated teleology, teleological German journalism in the 17th century. The Pennsylvania Gazette, for example, Ben Franklin's newspaper, was a kind of middle-of-the-road newspaper uh, which carried the usual things, mainly official news from Europe that newspapers carried in those times. But shortly after he took charge of the Gazette in 1729, Ben Franklin put out an announcement to his readers asking them to become sources for him. He asked them to send in reports of every remarkable accident, occurrence, etc., fit for public notice. And they, and they did send these things in. And the paper carried a lot of items over the next few weeks. Drownings, uh, a large panther was shot, a hundred-year-old woman just died, a murder trial, a snake active in January, very unusual in Pennsylvania, uh, and so on. And some of these were written up as just little items. Some were written up as what later newspaper people would call brights. Uh, and some of these you may have heard. Uh, one of them, he says, this is the whole item. And sometime last week we were informed that one Piles, a fiddler, with his wife were overset in a canoe near Newtown Creek. The good man, tis said, prudently secured his fiddle and let his wife go to the bottom. All of these are stories that, that are, would be familiar newspaper fare today. And my point is that they would have been familiar a hundred years before, too, to, to uh, people in, in Ben Franklin's native New England. Uh, the recording of Providence ma providences mattered to Ben Franklin, just as it had mattered to Increase Mather and Samuel Danforth and John Winthrop, but with a difference. What had been divine providence uh, had become already by 1729, simply the news. I'll end up by mentioning that in the 19th century, this, of course, had traveled even, even farther down the road, and uh, a an editor of one of the sensational papers in the late 19th century used to say that what news is is anything that causes the reader to say, oh my God. Now, the point is, is that this is the same thing as how news was defined in the 17th century. But of course the news, like the exclamation by the 19th century, had been drained of religious meaning. Uh, just as the phrase, oh my God, lived on after it had lost its force as prayer, so the news lived on after it had lost its role in teleology. News that had once been important had become merely interesting. And so it is today. I'm a collector of, of uh, monstrous birth stories, and uh, I'll end by saying a, a divine the, the divine providence that caused me to do this paper, in fact. I, I had been thinking about these things, and particularly I was fascinated by the Mary Dyer story. And one day I walked into a grocery store, and all three of the main tabloids had monstrous or unusual birth stories. One was 78-year-old granny is expecting twins. One is great-grandma, 66, has 11-ounce baby. And one is elect was electric shock, makes five-year-old girl pregnant. And I thought... I am supposed to do a story that involves Mary Dyer's baby, so I did.
and that's why I'm standing before you today. Thank you.